Father, we, we thank you for the privilege it is to know you. We say that we love you. We thank you that you love to speak to people like us. And we pray that you might do that this morning. As Jack has read and as I help us to understand and to open it up and to preach, would you soften our hearts that we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there's an American pastor I like named Thabiti Anyabweli, and he asks this question. He says, he says, think with me for a moment. What would you say is the only power on earth that can destroy the church? That's his question. I guess if you're here this morning as a, someone who calls up a Christian, a believer or not, or you're not quite sure, how would you answer that? What would you, what would you come up with? He says this. He says, well, clearly it's not the powers of hell, because Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. He says the power is not persecution. Sometimes, despite persecution by kings, powers, authorities, sometimes the Lord has been pleased to use that persecution to purify and to grow the church. He says the power is not false teachers. From the time of the apostles, false teachers have entered the church and taught heresies, but they won't finally prevail over the church. He continues like this, he says, As I thought about this question, the only power on earth that I could think of that could destroy the church is Christians, at least professing Christians. Because Paul writes to the churches in Galatia and says, If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He concludes, The most serious problem I can think of facing the church is the continual strife, argument and fighting the end of which is self-destruction. It's quite provocative, isn't it? He says, it's ironic that Christians may succeed at doing what Satan and all of his forces are powerless to do. Wow. How important is unity in the local church? It's striking. But do you see why? Because if God has reconciled a very diverse people to himself, and so his wisdom and his power in the gospel are on display for all to see, Remember last week? He said we had, we had enemies who had become friends in little communities, little churches all over the world, around the world, changing the world. But then Thabiti warns us, what happens when people in church squabble? What happens when, when you moan to your colleagues about that person in your home group who you just don't get on with or that person just sat over there in, in the room? It's not just a relationship that's broken. It's as we divide and different factions develop and disunity reigns and something more cosmic is going on. Because Jesus on the cross has brought people together in unity. And as we squabble, we bring disunity. We undo his work on the cross. We, we resurrect dividing walls of hostility, things that he's broken down. And so you see why unity matters. It's such a huge topic in this letter to the Ephesians. And it's still a huge topic for us, isn't it? And when a cynical watching world looks in at the squabbles in the church and they say, look, they're just like us, really. They just hang about with people like them and they just split off into groups or churches full of people just like them and rather than being diverse communities, we're just identical clubs. Now, we'll see in a bit. That doesn't mean that we won't disagree. That doesn't mean that we're all kind of cookie-cutter clones. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does mean we need to prize and value unity. 
In fact, I think that is the main application in the letter. In big picture terms, 1 to 3 are all about the foundational reconciliation and unity that Jesus has achieved through the cross. That's the big picture of 1 to 3. And 4 to 6 is, well, how do you keep that unity? How do you grow that unity? And so we have two points. If you've been around for a while at Maudlin Road, you know I like two points. Three points are too many for me. Two points. Definitely the way forward. Um, If you're a note taker, verse 1 to 6, we're thinking about keeping up our unity. And verse 7 to 16, growing up in unity. So 1 to 6, keeping up our unity. And so Paul says, you are united in Jesus. That is a reality. You are united to him, and you are united to one another. There's There's a vertical element and a horizontal element, he says. And so now he says, live that out. Live out that unity that you already have. Keep the peace. How? Well, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And living out your calling is hard work. For him, verse 1, it means Paul stuck in prison. For the Ephesians... It means being willing to put others first. Being willing to to prize peace. Someone said there are two major threats to to that peace being lived out in church. Two major threats to that peace being lived out at Magdalen Road Church. Those two major threats? You and me. Because we still have our egos and our agendas and our thoughts on how stuff ought to be done and we still have our little prejudices and our likes and we're not finished yet are we and so paul's recipe for peace have a look at verse two humble gentle patient bearing with each other in love seems to me it's It's a kind of church culture, it's a deliberate posture among us that flows from us having grasped the gospel and grasped it not in the sense that we're just simply reconciled to God but grasped it in the sense that it sets the tone for us as to how we treat each other on on a Wednesday. How we treat each other when, when we're not doing so well. To be humble. To be humble is... It's not to think so much of ourselves, whether that's in the sort of overly introspective nasal gazing or the, the kind of strutting and the pe- proudly peacocking around and look at me, I'm great, but, but rather it's thinking of him, his greatness. Thinking of his, his people, somebody at the door. Exciting. It's to have that knee-jerk reaction that says, what is, what is best for us? rather than what is best for me. It's to think soberly and honestly and vulnerably about our own faults and our own failures and our own weaknesses, and so to know his extraordinary kindness and grace. And if we're humble, then we'll be gentle. Next word. Because we're aware of our own weaknesses and our own mistakes, then we won't overreact when people get it wrong because we know, well, we get it wrong. 
and how has the Lord treated me? When, when they rub me up the wrong way or when they criticise me, we won't be harsh, we won't be snappy because God is gentle with, with you and with me. Which means we'll be patient. Next words. It means we, we grow a longer fuse. We're bearing with people who might be very different from us. We're willing to forgive them again, even though they promised they would change and they promised they would try harder and they promised they would never do it again, but, but they did. And so because God is patient with us, then we are patient with them. Indeed, we are slow to anger and we are abounding in love because that's what he is like. You see, this gospel of grace, it's not just a message we believe in. It's not just chapters one to three, here's some doctrine that we tick. It's now here's how it shapes our church. Here's how it shapes us and our lives. Here's how it trickles down into every little nook and cranny of who you are and your week and what life is about. And I reckon that's hard enough. That's hard enough because of our own sin, isn't it? Let alone people who aren't like us as we engage with them. Imagine in Ephesus, as, as, as Phil was reminding us, imagine you've got Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians balking at each other because they wrestle that they've got to love each other. Think of it. Think of the cultural practices, the clothes you wear, the food that you eat, the company you keep. And they have to bear with one another in love? Wow. And we say, well, does it matter that much? I mean, does it matter that much if I just kind of slip off somewhere and I can find, find perhaps a church with people who are a bit more like me to, to be um, linked up with? But Paul says, no, 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 just wait up before you slip out the door. Wait, look at how one you are in Christ. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. This is you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, he just hits it home, doesn't he? One, one, one. Look at how one you are, Ephesian Christians. You're not two bodies, you are one. And so make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Prize unity. Value unity. Love unity. Fight for unity. Treasure unity. Be one because God is one. It matters. And I look out and I think the Lord has been remarkably kind to us at more than those. I think we have remained hugely unified as a church over the last few years. And I find that striking because we do sit in different places on different things, whether it be areas of theology or culture or politics or background or language or age and stage or whatever. I don't mean to be thankful to the Lord for that. But the other striking thing for me as I read this is if you read the commentators, they tell us probably this was a letter that went to linked congregations around the town of Ephesus. This was a letter that was passed between different little churches. And so whilst definitely there is application for us in a local church, I think it may have currency between different congregations too. Unity amongst different churches in a locality. And it can be so easy to perceive them as them competition 
rather than family. And so Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How can we pray for different churches in our locality? How can we encourage them? The other striking thing for me, um, which I just added in at the start of the service because it just struck me as Phil and I were praying, is that it's really difficult at times to be unified when you're in different rooms. And some of you are at home. Hi, guys. What does it mean for us to be unified at a time like this? Because it really matters. We know we're in a sort of stage of imperfection. We know we would much rather be in one room together, but we can't currently do that. And for practical terms, practical reasons, different reasons. So maybe there's a question for home groups this week. How can we remain unified? How can we live out that oneness, even though for various reasons we have to be in different places as we meet on a Sunday morning? So there's your first point. The second is verse 7 to 16, growing up in unity. Have a look down with me. And the picture you have in verse 10 is of this victorious king. He is triumphant. He is conquering. And as he ascends in victory, so he showers down gifts upon his people, upon the church. There are gifts to individuals. You see that in verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. But then to the church corporate as well in verse 11. So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, apostles and teachers. And we could talk lots about those different gifts there in verse 11. Um, that's a key verse in many ways in the New Testament. Um, but for now, just notice that the similarities and the differences between the different gifts outlined there. Um, the similarities are that they are all, as I see it, word gifts. They're all to do with speaking. And that matters because when we walked out on God at the beginning, when we said we didn't want God in charge anymore, we doubted his goodness, we doubted his word, we doubted his, his attitude towards us, did he love us? We didn't want to live under his rule anymore. Well, so as a redeemed and reconciled humanity, joined together, united together, we sit together again under his words. These foundational word gifts. And that shouldn't surprise us in one sense, because the church is not our plan, it's his plan. This is his job we're doing. Imagine, imagine a scenario, imagine a young family. There have been a few, few in the, um, this morning, you've been able to see them in the, in the room together with us. Imagine a young family looking to put together an Ikea wardrobe. And as you can imagine, it's probably going to be utter chaos, isn't it? Some are there ripping the packets open, looking for the Allen keys, losing the Allen keys. Some, more cautious, trying to visualise and picture what this thing is going to look like at the end. And Some would just enjoy being creative. I'm just going to express myself and I'm going to put that thing with that thing there. And Oh, look at that, it's beautiful. Others getting bored, looking for snacks. And probably there's going to be squabbles. Probably there will be tears. Probably there will be friction, shall we say. But then if you say to them, hey guys, look, this piece of paper here tells you how to do it. These are, these are what we call the instructions. This is how you're, you're meant to put this wardrobe together. Suddenly you see 
might be a bit sort of hit and miss, but actually it works. Because there's a right way of doing it. Also, the local church is foundationally God's project. It's not our project. It is his plan to fix a broken world. It is his plan to give us a glimpse of where it's all going. It is his unified body with Christ as his head. And so it must all be rooted and grown fundamentally from his word. Because the local church isn't about us. This is not our idea. Would we plan to do it this way? Probably not. And when you know who he is and what he's like and what he's done for us, and then his people are equipped for works of service, then things begin to work. They are built up, they are growing, they are maturing, they are flourishing in Christ. And so he gives us different gifts to enable that to happen. So there are similarities foundationally. But then in verse 11, I think there are differences as well. Um, I take it, if you track back through the letter, have a glimpse, or write it down and look later, 2 verse 20 and 3 verse 5, you see that um, the apostles and the prophets are, are kind of foundational gifts, foundational to the church being born. And then you've got evangelists and pastor teachers are more everyday type gifts. The gospel being shared and spread. The gospel going out and then the gospel being applied and worked in, worked out. And as he always does, God doesn't shower maturity down upon his people. He, He wants us to grow into that. And so he gives us the gifts to make that maturity happen. We say, okay, well, what would a community that is sitting again under the word of God look like? What would that mean? Well, Paul says, okay, verse 12 and 13, we see a flourishing church. We see a community where people are equipped to serve, where the body is built up in maturity. A community where unity in the faith is evident. A community where we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's not just unity for unity's sake, it's It's Paul talking about a unity that comes from a corporate and a spiritual maturity as the word of God is is opened up. Notice as well that as God's word is taught, uh, service happens. Often we think, well, you know, I stand at the front and I speak to you guys, I'm just trying to educate you. I'm trying to get my thoughts into your head or onto your bits of paper, whatever it might be. I want you to have a better understanding of the passage. And there's a bit of that. But actually more importantly is that we want to help one another to apply it, to live it out. We want to be a church that serves because God's word is opened up and it equips us to become the people that we were made to be, which in one sense are servers. I'd love you to pray for us those who have the privilege of standing at the front to do this, that we might teach in such a way that the body is equipped to serve, that our, that our church family would be enabled and matured and flourishing and growing together in unity as we become more like Christ. Um, the other thing to notice, as, as Paul writes, this maturity, he, he gives us some glimpses of what it looks like and there are two, two aspects I want to bring out. Um, the first one, this maturing body in Christ, is seen through, through how we speak, the words that we use. It was a maturing body through words. If you're taking notes, these are kind of sub, two sub-points for the second point. Um, if you're not, don't worry. 
A maturing body through words, though. So there are these foundational words at the front from the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. But then verse 15, have a look. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So these aren't just apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Actually, we are all word ministers in one sense. We are all to use our words well. We need a culture where in church it's okay to gently, verse 2, gently speak and apply the gospel to one another. And this sort of speaking the truth in love, do you know, I'm not sure that that is... Well, I say in love, I'm not sure that shirt really suits you or those trousers really flatter you. I don't think that's what speaking the truth in love is. Speaking the truth in love, I think it's more the truth of the gospel. It's chapter one, applied into everyday life. Applied to your situations and your weeks. It's helping each other to apply the gospel on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday. It's so when you're feeling rubbish on a Thursday and you keep mucking up and you keep making mistakes and beating yourself up about it, it's reminding each other that Jesus is enough. His death in your place gives you value and worth and identity. And it might be annoying that you keep mucking stuff up, but you are in him and you are valuable and you are precious. And that is where your worth comes from. It's not whether you've had an 8 out of 10 day or a 9 out of 10 day, but it's because you are in Christ. It's applying the gospel. Or it's Friday, and you're, you're aware of your body falling apart. Now, if you're younger in the room here, you won't perhaps feel that quite so much, but some of us, as we get a bit older, we're more aware of things not healing as they used to, or the recovery time after exercise, all that kind of stuff, or, or even worse than that. And so on a Friday, it's reminding each other that Jesus was raised and he will come back. And in the new creation, our broken bodies will be a thing of the past. And in Christ, we have a real hope. It's applying the gospel into the everyday. Or it's Saturday and you lack patience with whoever spends the day with you on Saturday. Or so perhaps it's reminding each other that God is extraordinarily patient with us. And when, where your fuse is so short, well, remember what kind of fuse he has with you. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. And so praying that by his spirit he would give you more patience. Speaking the truth in love, it's not, I'm going to be honest and say something unpleasant. It's not, chin up, it'll be all right, don't worry, it's not so bad. But it's the kind of culture whereby the gospel trickles down. And we know that we are loved and accepted. And so we know it's okay to encourage and to build up and to love one another. And and at times to gently, verse 2, challenge each other. To put people around us who have the permission to do that. The kind of people we will listen to and take it from. Let me give you an example. Um, I remember speaking to a group of friends in Oxford. I don't think any are in this room, so I'm going to go anyway. Um, And they're too busy. They're the kind of people who, who too easily take on too much. And if you've been in Oxford any length of time, you will know it is a stupidly busy place. 
But for these friends, a number of them have diagnosed one of the reasons they are so busy. They've asked themselves the hard questions. They kind of dug down into their hearts. Well, why am I so busy? Why do I keep um, having too much stuff spewing out of my diary? Things I keep dropping and forgetting. And they've, they've stopped and they've paused, they've reflected, and they've realized that it's people-pleasing. That's their admission, not mine. They say things like, I don't want to let people down. And so I say yes too often. I rarely say no. My weeks get too busy, and so I crash and burn. Does that ring any bells? Some smiles. What would speaking the truth in love look like to them? Well, I didn't need to. But it would have been that they, you have a perfect identity in Christ. All he has won is yours. You died with him, you rose with him, you are in him. And whilst it's right we're part of a body and it's right that we serve and he's made us for that and we pour ourselves out into each other's lives, it's wrong to hang our identity and worth and value off pleasing others, caring too much what they think, because we end up being enslaved to them. And then we burn out. So it's a kind of culture where it's okay to lovingly gospel people, to help people apply the reality of Christ dying in your place and being raised again. And the result of that, of that sort of speech, we'll have a look, it's we will grow to become the mature body of him who is the head. We will grow to become the mature body of him who is head. So it's not just about words. It's striking that Paul outlines how vital this living is and he hangs it off of words and works. It's a maturing body through works as well. You get it in verse 12 to equip his people for works of service. Do you remember 2 verse 10, the good works prepared in advance for us to do? Well, here's some of that. Or verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. God has designed his body in such a way that everyone's involved. And as everyone's involved, corporately we mature and we grow. So we're not all the same, but we are all needed. Reflecting this week, well, I think this is particularly timely in that sort of post-pandemic gentle movement back to normality, whatever that means. You know, the kind of in-between stage that we're in now, where things aren't quite as we'd like them to be, but they're much better than they were, and we, but we know there's a place to go. And I say this gently, but when you're not involved, we are all weaker. Because that's how God designed it. When someone's not around, everyone else suffers to an extent because the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And I know it's a complicated time and I say this really gently and different people are on different trajectories back to church life and, and that's right. And it's right that some are very cautious. But I don't think that negates the statement that each part does its work. Now, if you've been around at Maudlam Road for any length of time, you will know that often we talk about church as being not like a restaurant, but rather like a family meal. So it's not like a restaurant where you come in, where you sit down, you consume, you, you leave, um, you leave a review on TripAdvisor, particularly if it wasn't very good. 
But rather, we're a family meal. It's a place where everyone's involved and someone's on puddings and someone's on starters and someone's collecting chairs from around the house and someone's washing up and someone's welcoming on the door. And and we're not a restaurant, but we are a family meal. And if I can just sort of stretch that image a little bit too far, I wonder if, for some of us, our jobs might need to change for a season. I think that's probably true in life anyway. As you get older, you go through different seasons. Perhaps your capacity or your time changes. And so maybe puddings were your thing, proverbially. But now, because of vulnerability, you can't really come. You can't really come on a Sunday morning, for example. Maybe you need to work out for a season whether there's a new role that you can play in the life of the body, a new place for you to serve. And that might simply be praying. Realistically, that might just be saying, do you know, for two hours a week, I'm going to book this in and I'm simply going to pray for my church family. We would love that. We need that. But Paul makes it clear we are still needed, all of us. Different people do different things in different seasons, and that's okay but we're still needed. Um, come and chat to me afterwards. If you'd like to talk more about that outside. Um, or if you're at home, and you may well be, then drop an email this week. I'd love to try and think through what that means that each part does its work at a time like this. Because it's complicated. We know it's complicated. I want to apply this as well, just to one area of church life, reflecting on the kind of age and stage that we're at, or this time of the year. Um, this is the time in Oxford where lots of people are looking for a church to settle in. Um, My comment off the back of these verses is, please don't just look for somewhere that will serve you best. Don't go to a church where the majority of your itches or the most of your itches will be scratched. Now, do you see from the passage? Go somewhere where you can serve where you can be equipped, where you can be enabled, where you can grow in maturity, where you can flourish, where you can engage in the works of service that the Lord has prepared in advance for you to do, where you can be a part of the body. Because that is how churches are designed to function. That is God's plan. If I can be slightly blunt, please don't be so selfish to think that we don't need you, and don't be so proud to think that you don't need us. We would love you to come and be a part of the family meal. But come and get stuck in. Come and be involved. We're almost there. Zoom in again at verse 15 and 16. I think there's a really key word as we finish. This is a key word that needs to flow through everything. As we mature in all our words and our works, what we say and our actions. Or verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Or verse 16, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so we end up where we started from verse 2, we end up in love. Love is at both ends, it's the bookends of this section. Because Paul knows what we're like, he knows our hearts. And so when you speak the truth to one another, when you gospel each other, how are you to do it? Do you just put people in their place and give them a bit of a dressing down? Do you do it in a way that's harsh and cross, just gets it off your chest? No, you do it in love. 
Or when you serve, verse 16, when each part does its work and the body grows to maturity, how do you function as part of the body? How do you play your part in the family meal? Is it begrudgingly and grumpily and with a hard heart and lots of huffing and puffing and lots of eye rolls and, oh, it's my turn again. No, you do it in love. Because love must be at the heart of a community, at the heart of a church that has Jesus as its head. As Andrew reminded us with the family talk, Jesus who has a love that is high and wide and deep and long. And as we grasp more of that love for ourselves, so we grow in that love as a church. Let me pray. Lord, there's so much in here. And so we pray that you would pray that you would help each of us to work out what you're saying to us this morning, particularly, and that you would help us as a church body, a church family, to work out what it means um, for us corporately. Thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. We pray that we would keep that unity. We pray that we would be humble and gentle and patient and bear with each other. We pray that we might live a life worthy of the calling we've received. We pray that we would grasp and enjoy our oneness together rather than going somewhere else. And we pray too that we might be a church that grows in our unity. As your word is opened up, as we are equipped and enabled to flourish and grow in maturity, might our our words to each other and our works as we live all be done in love. Might you grow us as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.